Hello and welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series. Let's get fizzing. This is episode six of our pilot series. Throughout the series, we're sharing plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong, and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is hosted by three glittering multimedia starlets, British-German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Werten, and British-Australian actor and writer Josephine Start. This episode is hosted by Tamara von Werten and Josephine Start. This episode, we will be listening to the play White Tuesday by Eve Lee. In the play White Tuesday, Jasmine and Bianca have been arrested after some environmental direct action goes south. At least they think they've been arrested. They've not had their rights read to them. They're just stuck in this room until someone decides to get them out. And they're beginning to suspect that it might take quite a long time. After the play, we will be talking to writer Eve Lee and a special guest from the organisation Police Spies Out of Lives. White Tuesday by Eve Lee genuinely there's it's lucky you know I have nothing to give them because I'd have given it definitely you think yeah do you have anything to give them I don't know I don't who knows what they have and who knows what they want and who knows if it'd even do any good do you any good us any good? Yeah. Us, do you think? Maybe. I don't know. Oh, oh, oh no! Oh, oh lord! Oh, for the fuck of! Oh! Don't tell them anything! 
Obviously, but they're mainly just so stupid, aren't they? Shadows on the moon and what temperature does steel melt at and that. Because the way the system is rigged is just so fucking obvious. I mean, why would you need a conspiracy theory? Please stop biting your lips because it will seriously only get worse and then they'll be cut and bloody and chapped and disgusting and they'll just get worse and worse because they're never going to give you lip balm in here. Sorry. Sorry, I can't help it. Stop, stop or it will just get worse. Oh, stop. Good. How long have we been here? I really don't know anymore. I was keeping track of it with the number of times I had to wee, but I lost track of that ages ago. Days, I think. Probably. I mean, probably not weeks. Yeah. I mean, I don't... You could tell me anything at this point. Do you know which ocean we're in? No. But it can't be far, right? Why would it be far? What's your second name? Martes. Bianca Martes. It's really pretty. It means White Tuesday. What does White Tuesday mean? Is that a trick question? No, I just... The way you said it, I thought maybe it might mean something. In Spanish, or... Where's your family from? The DR. You? St Lucia. Do you think they might be trying to extradite us? I was born in the UK. I've got a UK passport. No, sorry, I, obviously, I just... Elsewhere, on the surveillance tape. Do you think our faces are on t-shirts and that? Depends, if I'm honest. Depends how many of us they rounded up. If it's just us, then... Well, it depends whether they convince people that we did it. If they see through it. It depends what the raid was for. Well, there goes our chance to be the Pussy Riot of the Western world. Pussy Riot is the Pussy Riot of the Western world. Maybe they've forgotten all about us. Is that a useful thing to say, do you think? Elsewhere, on the surveillance tape. How did she get into the water tank? That's what I don't understand. But they have the surveillance tape. Right, she got in the elevator. She was fighting. If you watch the video, she was... The way she moves her arms, it's like she was fighting someone. Who, like... Who doesn't show up on the tape for some reason. And she... Before that, she presses all the buttons on the elevator. But the elevator doesn't move. And she's totally... She's... She's desperate. And then... Whatever it is... This thing only she can see, like, gets in with her. And she... 
and she runs out of camera range. And they only found her in the water tank when the water came out black. Another frame of the surveillance tape. It's weird we haven't been interrogated, right? I was interrogated at the station. I wasn't interrogated. At all. That's weird, right? What did they ask you about? If I was plotting to blow up central London. If I knew anyone who was plotting to blow up central London. If it had ever crossed my mind to blow up central London. If I'd ever daydreamed about on and on. What did you say? That anyone who says they've never daydreamed about blowing up central London has never been on a city bus at rush hour. Did you really say that? No. As said, no one on the far left proposes violent action apart from undercover police. Which is true. I feel like I've heard people bring up some things. Who? I'm serious, Bianca. Fucking who? Um, a really aggressive guy. Sort of older, with blonde dreads. Which side did he live at? I only ever saw him at Merriam Street. Jerry. Mm. Yeah. I'm not saying he's old Bill, but if it turns out he is, I'd be like <laughs> the least surprised person in the room. <laughs> he's such a wanker. You know, one time he slept with my friend and he made her go to a cash point after and give him 20 quid. That's so fucked up. He made her. He made her how? I think he just frog marched her there. She basically paid him to go away. Which friend? Couldn't say. Jasmine eyeballs the audience. People like that, it doesn't even matter if they're police really. They're doing the work of the police whether they get paid to or not. They should stay out of the movement or get thrown out. Why? Why did you do that? Bianca imitates her eyeballing the audience. Why do you think? Do you think we're being watched? Jasmine looks at the audience, then back at Bianca. Are you stupid? Oh! Ah! 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 where it's coming from! Ah! Wait it out! What? Wait it out! It passes! It does! just darkness for half an hour I'd kill for some kind of air some kind of breeze or something in my lungs I'd kill for dancing I'd kill for sex I'm sorry if that's awkward but I would on the surveillance tape. White Tuesday. It's like a code name. My dad's name is Sunday Tuesday. Seriously? Domingo <laughs> Madpiss. Swear to God. Jesus. <laughs> he swears he knew someone at school who was called Julio Augusto. July, August. <laughs> <laughs> what do they talk to you about when they talk to you? 
the usual. Why don't they interrogate me? Why are they holding me if they haven't interrogated me? They're asking the wrong person. Elsewhere, on the surveillance tape. A library? Really? Last term. Did you get caught? No! How do you have sex in a library? Very quietly. <laughs> you? My boyfriend's friend's car. Four years ago. How old were you? Seventeen. Nearly the same age as me. Fuck, I keep forgetting how young you are. You first got involved this year, right? When I moved to London. What's it like if you cover my eyes and I cover your eyes? What's it like? They try, hoping that the darkness will feel more convincing if it is someone else's hand covering their eyes rather than their own. Disappointing. Yeah. I don't know. I thought for a second it might. <laughs> yeah, I... But no. No. You mainly hang with Phoenix and Delia, right? I... I mean, uh, we're friends, but I don't feel like I hang out with... I hang out with a lot of people. Everyone seems to know you. People have been really cool since I moved down. Really friendly. Yeah, I was curious to meet you. I remember, before all this. Scary stories. Elsewhere on the surveillance tape, Jasmine is clowning at the audience, making faces, sticking up two fingers, maybe mooning or flashing. Bianca has been dozing. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? A bit of fun with whoever's watching. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, you'd know more than me. Maybe they think I don't have anything to tell them. Do you? I mean, I could tell you which skips have the best packaged food, but I don't think that's really what they're looking for. Do you know why we're here? Because there was a terrorist attack and nobody knew what to do, so they just rounded up everyone. Was there, though? Was there? You saw the smoke. Everyone saw the smoke. The question is, who had the motive to plant the bomb? What do you think? Maybe it was one of us. No chance. Why not? Really, though, how do you know it wasn't one of us? It's never one of us. But that's not a proper answer, though. Why haven't they interrogated you? Is it because they haven't gotten round to it, do you think? I, I don't know why they haven't interrogated me. You show up out of nowhere, you make friends with everyone right away. No. And two months later, there's a big explosion and all of a sudden everyone's 
taken off somewhere. No, no way. And they put me, they put one of the proper, the proper long-term trusted in a cell, not in solitary, with a girl everyone knows and everyone likes, with a name like a code. No way, no, never. Why not? Because, because I'm not. Because I, I have a life and friends and a family and... Well, you say that, but it doesn't prove anything from here. Wouldn't I? Wouldn't someone, what, let something slip or... Why wouldn't they interrogate me? Doesn't it, doesn't it make it kind of obvious if I'm not being interrogated? Double bluff. That's stupid. Look, you've basically made it so nothing I can say will convince you. Jasmine. Jasmine. Oh, for fuck's sake. Elsewhere on the surveillance tape. Your mother wanks off goats. I fucked your dad on your grandmother's grave with your horse's dick. You smell like a jellyfish that's been on the beach for a few days too many. Hey, did you hear that they sent a jellyfish into space and it procreated and now there's a spaceship packed with jellyfish orbiting the earth? But it's true. Think about that. We deliberately put jellyfish in space, and now there's nothing we can do. They're out there, biding their time. For the love of fuck, stop talking. Aha! Space jellyfish. I can definitely report that back to my evil overlords. Really, shut up. It's all on video anyway. Why did you ever talk to me? First, because I didn't say anything that incriminated anybody. And secondly, because I didn't think you were... Never mind. Jasmine? Jasmine, are you... Are you scared? ghosts. No, what if we... But seriously, how would we know if we were already dead? We wouldn't be moving around. Elsewhere on the surveillance tape. Maybe we'll never get out. Maybe we'll die in this room. Maybe the shower won't turn on anymore. There won't be any more food through the door, and then... Oh, say anything! Anything! Anything at all! Bianca throws herself on the ground. Jasmine barely reacts. Bianca tries to hug Jasmine. Jasmine fights her way out while doing as little as possible to acknowledge that Bianca is even there. Finally, shoves Bianca away. Bianca starts tearing her clothes off. Jasmine glares at the audience and tries to cover Bianca up. Bianca, half-dressed, grabs hold of Jasmine. I think it was us. I think it was us. I think it might have been us. I don't know, but I think it could have been. Why won't you admit that? It could have been. 
I mean, why couldn't it have been one of us? I mean, Jerry talked about it all the time. Frank talked about it all the time. Even Delia and I talked about it. And if there's no centralised, there are loads of us, Jasmine, who think... Why... Why are you looking at me? Why... Jasmine is looking at Bianca. But it is as if someone we have never seen before has entered Jasmine's body. Oh, why Tuesday? I could be wrong, but... I think the first phase of your interrogation just came to an end. Jasmine, you'll never see me again. What's gonna... The lights go out. A door swings open. Blinding white light comes through. The reading of the play was directed by Lily McLeish and performed by Jennifer Jackson and Evelyn Miller with sound design by Julian Starr. We caught up with Eve Lee, who is a writer for performance. Plays include Midnight Movie, Royal Court, Berlin Theatertreffen, Stückemarkt Selection 2020, While You Are Here, The Place, Dance East, The Trick, Bush Theatre National Tour, Spooky Action at a Distance, Royal Court, Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, The Curtain, Young Vic Taking Part, Stone Face and Silent Planet, both Finbrook Theatre. Games include The Delegation, Coney, A Day in the Life of Someone Else, Oscar Mike. Installation work includes Movimento Variations, Bulgarian National Theatre Festival, Your Future, How, Zofin Zähler, Ballhaus Ost, Camden People's Theatre. Dramaturgy includes How to Win Against History, Young Vic. Commissions include National Theatre Connections, Bush Theatre, Royal Shakespeare Company and Sheffield Theatres. Lee was one of the Royal Court's two Jerwood playwrights of 2019 and artist in residence at the National Theatre of Greece 2017. So Eve, uh, we're called Fizzy Sherbet because uh, initially when Tamara and Lily started their night for new playwriting at the Hackney Attic, they gave each audience member a little Fizzy Sherbet lemon sweet on their seats as a kind of token, but also as something that symbolised the, it just felt quite right for theatre, kind of the fizziness and the sourness and the sharpness. So that's where the name comes from. And we were just wondering whether you also potentially have a... Uh, a sweet uh, with a story for you or resonance for you? Well, I get very nostalgic about American sweets. Uh, it was one of the things that I found like interesting and really confusing when I first moved to the UK when I was 18 is like uh, that you all have like you had ch there was like chicken flavored crisps <laughs> in the vending machine. <laughs> at, my, like, at my, my like uni like common room. And I was just like, wow. For real? <laughs> like chicken, chicken and thyme flavored. And they were like walkers. They weren't like, you know, weird fancy crisps or something like that. Uh, and I was just like, that's bizarre. Um, but yeah, it's almost every aspect of the homesickness that I used to feel 
like apart from obviously like missing my family mm-hmm. um, has gone away. It's been so long, but I still get really nostalgic for like, uh, like I like, I will like describe American sweets to my husband and stuff. And he'll be like, that sounds gross. And I'll be like, yeah, I probably was gross, but <laughs> he really like it. <laughs> oh wow amazing that's fantastic um cool thanks thanks for running with a weird question it's just, it's just how we how we like to start things you know i oh, have to say i have it. the same um emotional attachment to strange german food as well so i completely yeah. get where you're coming from we also wanted to ask you some questions about white tuesday which we really love and firstly really we just wanted to find out what the inspiration was for you to write the piece well It sort of uh, came in two directions at once. Uh, And I think that that's honestly often how it is with plays is like, if you, if you're excited about only one thing, maybe it doesn't happen. But if it, if there's kind of like an outside hook and an inside hook, then it, then it makes sense. So uh, I'd been interested in Afrofuturism for a long time. And one of the things that inspired it was the publication of the first ever scholarly book on Afrofuturism. Uh, which is just called Afrofuturism, and which I would really recommend. It's by Itasha Womack. And the other is that um, some people in my life over a period, over quite a long period of time, really, had had, yeah, probably about over about 10 years, eight years, had um, had experiences with undercover policing. Um, And they were not necessarily... Um, like, I don't know what my expectations or stereotypes were about people who had experiences with undercover policing. Um, but, um, they didn't necessarily, apart from one of them was a very committed, uh, political activist. And that was like his whole life at that time. But the other two were people who were political, but in a way that is very recognizable, I think, to a wide range of people. Uh, and as much as they went to protest, signed petitions, but weren't necessarily, and like one of them crucially was involved in documenting protests, but they weren't necessarily uh, people who were um, very political in a way that, uh, I don't know, it just felt really dystopian. Uh, I mean, everything about it is dystopian. Mm. Being a committed full-time activist doesn't make you immune to like illegal prosecution, which is what this is. Um, But like, it was just so, it just felt like such a vicious and intense response to Mm. such a normal part of democracy uh, that it really kind of messed me up, I guess, messed me up. But you know, I like, uh, fucked me up is what I wanted to say. Like, I feel like mess me up somehow has like a weirdly a more intense emotional tenor than what I mean. I was just like, are you kidding me? Um, uh, so yeah, that's why I wrote it. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering because, um, you're talking about, I, I love the way you describe it as an inner hook and an outer hook that that's, yeah, that's, that's very evocative. I think, um, I was just wondering in terms of that outer hook being re- real events and real people, um, did you, did you experience any, any particular challenges around navigating, working with, uh, or at least being inspired by real kind of quite traumatic events? Yeah, I continue to feel uh, kind of complicated about um, 
yeah, I, I, it's just, it's so emotional for so many people. Uh, and, uh, and of course, like these are, these are people who are close to me, but I, to my knowledge, have not experienced uh, undercover police surveillance. Um, and so there's this kind of sense, uh, like I weirdly or not weirdly felt a similar sort of way when I was writing um, about, in my first play, I, I wrote about um, people who, uh, about uh, Soviet dissidents. Um, and uh, it's a weirdly similar feeling or, or not weirdly of just like understanding that you're dealing with real living people's real actual pain uh, and um, trying to be respectful mm. of that and trying to, I don't know, uh, like just that it feels like the closer you get, the more you understand that you will never understand. Yeah. Yeah, I can really, yes, I agree with that a lot. Um, I think what I find really interesting as well about White Tuesday is how you use the audience. Um, they are sort of employed as voyeurs in a way. How, how did you feel writing them in? And is that something that you do in your work? How, how do you treat the audience sort of in your head while you're writing? I really like to cast the audience. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's fun. Uh, and I also think it's, um, I feel like uh, I want most of the time uh, for the audience to be in some way complicit in like building the collective imagining of the play um, and casting them is a nice way of doing that in my opinion. Yeah, it's very involving. And um, I think in terms of evoking quite complex, uncomfortable feelings, it, it really works. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I, one thing that really stood out to me just, um, just reading it was um, the, the, the little conversation that the two characters have where one of them says, um, so much for being the pussy riot of the Western world. And the other one, I think, replies, uh, Pussy Riot, or the Pussy Riot of the Western world. But if you mean we'll be um, described as middle class in our home countries, then you're right. That's, I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I was really struck by, um, uh, yeah, your, your handling of, of class in that moment. And I, I just wondered, um, maybe if, if you have a few more thoughts on the positioning of, of class within political action in the piece. Hi listeners, um, just a little footnote here. The question I just asked Eve there is about a line in the play that was actually cut by the time it came to recording. Um, however, we just loved Eve's answer so much that we've decided to keep it in. I think that it's um, an interesting tabloid trick uh, that if you're outraged by inequality or like in general, like not happy about the way society is being run, uh, and you're a middle class, uh, some tabloid seems, seems to think that it's cheating, <laughs> like that you need to pick one, mm. but also that um, working class uh, activism is either not reported uh, or um, like really like reported in the most gross way and uh, really deliberately like kind of uh, uh, like misinforming way and kind of interpret it as like hooliganism and like, uh, just like the creepiest mm -hmm. stuff. Mm. Um, 
Uh, and I feel like that's an important dynamic uh, in contemporary resistance movements is like, I don't know, that people who are middle class in these movements uh, are sort of have it bad, but people who are working class have it way, way, way worse. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I, yeah, I felt like uh, it was important to, or like that also like that, working class people are erased from these movements, uh, that you found an identity belonging movement like this, you're interpreted as middle class or coded as middle class. Like, it's just like the weirdest. Um, and yeah, it just, it just felt uh, important for that to have some degree of space in this story. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 love, I mean, it's a very small moment, but there's so many very deft small moments in the piece. It's just, it's, yeah, it's just one that really stood out to me. Yeah. I was wondering as well, Eve, so, so your, your background is, is really interesting. So you're a US, UK and Ukraine playwright, I think is how you describe yourself. And you, you grew up in New York, but then you studied at Cambridge. And um, I think we were all really curious as to how you feel your locality in the world impacts both your writing and the way you feel it's perceived. Um, this is such an interesting question, and I'm really interested to hear the responses of the other playwrights in the series as well, uh, because it feels like you've selected some people at the intersections of some interesting diasporas. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I think if I think about my nationality or like my like where I'm from, uh, I think about the Pale of Settlement, which includes Ukraine but was basically the um, part of the Russian Empire that Jews were allowed to settle in. Um, uh, so we go back a little way. Um, my family comes from uh, Ukraine, sort of not like central, like not that far from Moldova, but not particularly close to Moldova either. Like it's always described as like a day's ride, which is like hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's not very, or it wasn't at the time that my family emigrated very industrialized there. And, um, yeah, and that's who I think that I am. And that's who, uh, we were always sort of described as growing up. Uh, and then I moved to the UK and I discovered that I was American. Um, uh, but like, um, not that I didn't know mm. that before, of course, and not that I wasn't aware of like the incredible privilege and good fortune uh, that moving to America had given me. And I really appreciate also um, growing, having grown up in, in America and having grown up in New York. Um, I think in terms of, and I appreciate my foreign accent. I think that uh, I'm also a neurodivergent. Um, and uh, I think that somehow having a I feel like I have an easier time socially in the UK in some ways than I did in the US. And I think it's partly because like, sometimes I can seem a little odd. Uh, mm. And like, in a way, my accent makes my oddness like placeable uh, in a way that's very intuitive for people. Interesting. Yeah. Um, mm. But I also feel very like, um, if I left the UK, I'd be so fucking sad. <laughs> I hope we're allowed to swear. It's um, fine. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> we have no rules yet of anything. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like I feel a lot of love for the UK and not exactly belonging, but like a happy, happy not belonging or something. 
um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm from. Amazing. Thank you. That's really, really interesting. Um, and I think you're right. We're already having a lot of interesting conversations with people and, and we're looking forward to, to many more in the series about their background and how that influences their work. And now, as you know, I'm from Germany, so I have a question to you about your um, perception of working both in the UK and in Germany. Is this something you can talk about a bit more? How, how are audiences different in um, the UK and, and Germany? Um, yeah, I'm really interested in the differences between like all of these places. Uh, and I'm especially interested, I feel like in the, there's like the stuff that people know is different. And then there's the stuff that like you can't even ask about because you're just like, pe people are so familiar with one tradition or so familiar with the other that they don't even recognize the distinctive qualities um, of, of each tradition. Um, uh, and I've also been lucky to work in um, Poland and Bulgaria, uh, and I really love uh, working in both of those places. And I, I feel like I have um, meaningful collaborators in both of those places. Um, so my understanding of uh, some of the differences between UK and German audiences, there's a bit of a cliche is that um, that, uh, German audiences are not necessarily expecting to be entertained in quite the same way. Um, that there's a bit of an idea that um, what theater makers are supposed to be doing uh, is holding up kind of an uncomfortable mirror to the world. Uh, and uh, we are very attracted to that idea, I think, in the UK. But um, I think we're, I think audiences and critics are largely unwilling to kind of uh, actually foot the bill to, to make something like that happen. Uh, and so there's this, there's a lot of like very bold rhetoric in the UK that's not necessarily backed up um, by a very um, transgressive work. Uh, and I'm not, I, I don't want to sound, uh, snooty either it's just that actually like i'm thinking particularly of a of a piece that i saw in poland uh and i thought it was not perfect but it was very very strong it was by oliver frillich it was called our violence and your violence it was about muslims in europe uh and it was mostly made by muslims and then there was like one christian and one jew i think who were who were also part of the cast uh and it was like oh man it was like so uh aggressively snotty it was like i mean <laughs> but also like i i use that word intentionally like some of its challenges were very serious uh and meaningful but there was also an attitudinal challenge which was literally like fuck you what are you gonna do about it do you know what i mean mm -hmm. like in this really like um yeah in this like snotty way um mm -hmm. and i was just like no uk critic okay this is, that's not fair but no UK broadsheet critic would put up with this for 10 seconds. Um, and like, there would be very serious institutional consequences if this were to come to the UK, uh, that I, that in this, this was in 2016 that I saw this. Um, and I feel like in this funding environment, uh, 
it would not be that was my my instinct and in fact it hasn't come to the uk although it has toured all over mm. uh europe uh and it was co-produced oliver Frolich, of course is croatian but um it was uh produced by i forget but like by like three german theaters plus uh the theater that he was the artist director of at the time in croatia um uh yeah um mm. But I also think that there's something, I don't know, I, uh, I saw a show um, at the Gorky uh, one time when I was, what was I doing? Oh, I was actually on the way to Poland um, to do, I, I saw that, the show that I was describing, uh, Our Violence and Your Violence on a residency in Poland, uh, an Artist International Development Fund residency. Uh, and I took the train and I, I saw a show in Berlin on the way. Um, uh, and it was, I don't remember the name and uh, I don't remember who made it. It was just at the Gorky. Um, uh, it was not good, um, but it was um, interesting to watch because I sort of felt like in the beginning, there was something about the way it wasn't, uh, wasn't really working um, uh, that I was like, oh, I could really see this like there's something really beautiful and funny and alive in the text that I could really see working in say the Bush studio mm -hmm. um, or like for random instance. And um, it was just like, I could see that there was like, it was like I was, I could see that there was a quality to the writing mm -hmm. um, where I was like, oh, in a different cultural context, I would really love this, I think, because, um, it was, um, it was like just, I mean, this, again, this is a terrible cliche, um, but it was like being, being played out. Uh, like there was a, yeah, there was like, it was a being played kind of to the audience um, uh, in a way that wasn't serving the text and in a way that made sense in a sort of larger um, German theater. Of course, um, the Gorky isn't like giant, um, but it's a lot bigger than, uh, uh, than some of the studio spaces that I would be thinking of. And yeah, there was just a like refinement and delicacy, uh, and, um, tenderness that I felt in the writing that I was like, oh, I really, um, these are, these are things that I want to be more conscious of about what I feel as my native writing culture, uh, because these are really wonderful qualities. Mm. Um, I'm I'm really I'm, sorry sorry to interrupt. No, just that I'm lucky to be working with people who uh, mm. who recognize that. Yeah, I'm re I'm just really struck by that whole story of of um, in the way that you you speak about it, the way the way that you kind of approach um, potential like imperfections or, or roughness and and also potential in a, in a piece. I think you're the the way that you're thinking as you watch things is really it is intriguing and it obviously speaks speaks to your to your eye as as an artist um i'm just wondering as well um what are some things that you keep in mind when you're when you're thinking about working on something with other people with collaborators what are the qualities um if you can name them that uh that appeal to you that you really look for before you start working on something um it really depends on the um, on the role the, of that I'm imagining them in. I feel like the people that I'm really drawn to collaborate with, like across, you know, whether they're like musicians or directors or 
actors or whatever. Um, uh, I feel like there's a certain shared aesthetic and especially like as part of that, maybe a shared sense of humor. I like people who are not afraid to be, uh, what's the word that I really want to say? Um, people who are not afraid of uh, thinking hard and making intricate work, uh, but also people who are not afraid of being like goofy idiots. Mm. Uh, I feel like that's really, I feel like my work becomes better and more itself. Uh, the less I'm afraid of uh, intellectual challenge and complexity and also of being a goofy idiot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That that's amazing. Yes, really, really lovely way of describing it. I also wanted to ask you, um, possibly as a last question, if there are any um, women artists, it doesn't have to be necessarily playwrights, it could be visual artists, any women who have inspired you or are an inspiration to you at the moment? Absolutely. Oh, my God. So uh, of the people... Yeah, uh, I'm really inspired, of course, by Annie Baker and Alice Birch uh, and young Jean Lee, speaking of people who are not afraid of being dead smart and conceptual and like incredibly stupid at the same time. I'm obsessed with young Jean Lee. I really love uh, working with Lily McLeish, which is really fortunate. Um, uh, yeah, the people who inspire me, who are like in my immediate environment include Jenny Jackson, Lily McLeish, uh, Rachel Bagshaw, the director, um, uh, uh, Nwando Abizi, the, um, I guess she's a kind of multi-form artist, but uh, I've worked with her as a composer and sound designer. Um, Matilda Ibini. Yeah. Matilda fun. Ibini is fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that list is already in incredible. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, un unfortunately, Eve, like we, we would love to just talk to you for hours and hours, but, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's been such a total pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, uh, and we, we're just so grateful to, to have your piece and to have this interview. Thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure to talk to you guys. And I'm so excited to see like how the whole series like evolves. It's wonderful. Director Lily McLeish tells us where she chose to direct White Tuesday. Eve Lee is an excellent artist and collaborator. I love Eve's writing and have worked with her before on a play for dance, which we created in 2019 with choreographer Jonathan Goddard and a bunch of incredibly talented performers. I am a huge fan of Eve's work, so I was very excited to work with Eve on another one of her plays. I think her work is bold and radical and she is a really sharp and intelligent writer. The work feels very political and the subject matter she chooses feel very charged so it feels incredibly exciting to collaborate with her on her work. I also think her plays have a strong emotional undercurrent and they don't shy away from humour either and are very quirky which I really enjoy and um, appreciate and I also think she creates very surreal strange worlds which I personally as a director feel very drawn to and I love the atmospheres in her plays and I really love the way she looks at the world and the way she voices that view 
So the story of White Tuesday is not one that I felt I had heard very often and I don't think I was particularly aware of. So when I read it, I was really interested in working with Eve on the play and uh, finding out more from her about this subject matter and discovering more about the topic. And of course, also working with the two wonderful actors we cast for this piece as well. With the sound design, we were very interested in bringing the surveillance element to the foreground and sort of creating this third character uh, of the surveillance person watching the women on the surveillance cameras, changing the tapes and fast forwarding. And we wanted to kind of, we wanted to capture the, um, this ominous, threatening, voiceless presence of this uh, voyeur and give the audience or the listener the feeling that they were watching the two characters on CCTV monitors and almost like they were in the room with the surveillance person watching from over that person's shoulder, um, watching these two women locked in the room. And I suppose I had quite a uh, classic image in my head of a silhouette of a person sat in a room full of monitors. But at the same time, it felt very important to create a closeness to the women and to give the listener the feeling of experiencing this terrifying experience of being locked and held in a room for an extensive period of time without any kind of explanation. And we wanted to be close to the characters or make sure that we could be close to the characters, especially the character of Bianca, and experience the betrayal which she experiences right at the end of the play from her perspective. Police Spies Out of Lives, PSOOL, is a campaigning support group working to achieve an end to the sexual and psychological abuse of campaigners and others by undercover police officers. They support the women affected by these issues to expose the immoral and unjustified practice of undercover relationships and the institutional prejudices which have led to the abuse. Um, so we're so glad uh, today to welcome Jessica onto the programme. Jessica is a pseudonym to protect our guests' anonymity. Jessica. Um, we would really like to know what happened to you and why you are part of Police Spies Out of Lives. Can you tell us your story? Um, yes, I was um, interested from a young age in animal rights and um, I was became sort of an activist around 14 years of age and was a hunt saboteur and just basically handed out leaflets and things, joined animal rights groups in London and um, and then I'll, I'll move forward to sort of 25 years later. And in 2017, I was contacted by an old friend that I knew from um, the early 90s. And he contacted me on Facebook and said, have I seen or have I heard about the um, spy cops? And sort of we had them in our group. And did I, had I been reading about it? And actually, at that point, I hadn't heard of Spy Cops at all. So I, it was all a bit of a mystery to me. But he sent me onto a website where I just went on and, and had a look. And I was reading about sort of Bob Lambert and 
And then as I scrolled through, there was a picture of my ex-boyfriend, Andy Davy there. And that was the first, the first sort of idea that I had that anything like that had, was even possible. I I'd sort of found out totally about, you know, the spy cops there and then. And then about sort of 10 minutes later, I found out that I'd had a relationship with one. Wow. God. Wow, I'm just, how do you survive a betrayal like that? And what does it do to your sense of reality, Jess? Um, it's, it basically, it undermines everything that you ever thought you knew about your life. I, that's the only thing that we can sort of be sure of is what's happened in our past. And, you know, we've lived through it and been through it. And then suddenly you learn, actually, no, you weren't controlling it. That wasn't what happened. It's a bit like the, the Truman Show. It's sort of those things that were kind of choreographed and you were pushed in certain ways. And then somebody that you spent a lot of time with, somebody that you slept with, were intimate with, wasn't even an actual person. They didn't actually exist as the person that you knew them as. They were actually, they were the police and they weren't sort of on their own. There was people behind them, sort of, other officers it's it's like I've suddenly had a relationship with I don't know how many of the police because I don't know what they know I don't know mm. whether when I stayed over at his flat whether like there was recordings made or video or anything mm. like that it's suddenly my relationship with him wasn't just with him mm. it, it's it's a public thing and now it seems to be because I don't know how many other people were involved I don't know what was said it's the awful, the awful things that you don't know that just go over and over and over in your head. So it's, it fundamentally undermines every, everything that you know. So it has an effect of you, you don't know who to trust because you look back at people and think, hmm, you know, that was, well, that was strange. Did that, did that actually happen? Or, you know, was that person real? <laughs> Whatever happened to them? And it's you know you can be you become completely paranoid and it's you know it even affects sort of people that you that you've met that aren't activists so people that I'd known recently in in my life suddenly I didn't know who they were I couldn't sure that they were you know that they were who they said they were it might be that you know I've been watched after that or sort of after I split up with Andy but I I just I don't know. That's that's the thing. It's everything takes on a completely different and quite sinister sort of um, meaning. You know, the, the car that's parked behind you that follows you down the road, are they just going the same way as you or are they watching you? You know, the person that stands too close to you when you get on the tube, are they going to push you under the train? It, it's, yeah, it's, it's a complete... Yeah. It's like... Um, it's like someone's thrown a hand grenade into your life and it's just never stopped exploding. Wow. That sounds so horrible. I'm really sorry. Um, you were also incredibly young when, when the betrayal happened, weren't you? Um, at the age of 19. And um, you started becoming involved with campaigning groups at the age of 14. Do yeah. you know, are you the youngest known person who this has happened to? Um, I think I am as far as as far as we know I am but 
the thing is because I mean now we've got the the um, undercover policing inquiry although that you know it's it's a bit of a joke really because they have we don't know the names we're not going to know the names of of so many of the officers that we just don't know we've got no idea actually how many women there were um you know we don't we don't know whether they're for all we know they could be underage mm. girls that it happened to you know we just don't know and we're not going to know the the chair just won't won't release their names so we we will never know that the actual scope of of you know the abuses we just won't know Wow. So, but all the people that we do know, yes, I think I'm I'm the youngest. I think most other people were sort of were like early twenties or at least in their twenties. Yeah. I mean, as you say, they're 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 not releasing information now. So I mean, in a sense, one would hope that, that this practice is is over now, but I guess I mean I guess who knows? Um is there anything that you could pass on to young people who might find themselves in a similar position today or any advice on what to look out for? Or is that a bit hard? I don't know. Um, it's, I suppose it's different in my situation slightly because of the way that, um, that it happened with me, the way that my relationship sort of started. Um, I, it, it wasn't, it was a slightly different relationship than the other women had, you know, to them sort of, it was, you know, like the, they were the ideal boyfriend and, mm. and it wasn't, I had no idea that he, that Andy had any, like, sort of any feelings towards me whatsoever. It just started with like a really embarrassing, like lunge by him and he just lunged at me and kissed me. And because, I mean, he actually was, he was my first proper boyfriend. So I wasn't, I was very young, very naive and inexperienced and just did not know. I was mortified. I didn't know what to do. And I think, I think it's something that sort of lots of people at that age go through. Mm. Um, just not knowing how to react. So I didn't want to make a scene. I didn't want him to kiss me. But mm. what, what do you, you know, what do you do? I was just so excruciatingly embarrassed. Um, and I, I think my my advice would be to to anyone, um, to any sort of young girl, is you know if it doesn't feel right, then you know go with your gut instinct. If it doesn't feel right, then it's not right. And you know I will never sort of forgive myself for not being sort of strong enough to say that I don't you know no get off. You know, I didn't want to like upset. I thought that would be a horrible thing to do. I didn't want to sort of to upset him. I didn't mm -hmm. want to just, you know, the whole thing was just so awkward and that. So my, I think that would be my um, my advice. But it's not necessarily that. That's it's wider than like the spy cops thing. Um, you know, this is about any situation of being in like that because, you know, aside from the fact that yes, he was an undercover police officer, you know, it was also. A, you know quite a predatory move by someone I mean I thought at the time he was 24 so I was 19 he was 24 and he was quite socially awkward I just thought it was a you know it was a really clumsy attempt by him you know and so all my life I've sort of written it off you know whenever I think thought about him I always remember that but I sort of wrote it off and say oh he was just he didn't know that that's really not what he was doing um but then sort of the more that I found out and like now we know who he is in real life um, and also that you know he wasn't in fact 24 he was 32 
Um, he'd been a police officer for about 10 years um, and he was married. And so it's, it's sort of, it's taken on a completely different, a completely different sort of feel for me is that it's not, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't just being sort of clumsy and that it's, you know, he was a lot older, he knew what he was doing. It was a predatory, you know, disgusting mm. thing to do to someone so much younger. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, it's sort of, you know, I've got that sort of slightly different thing with my situation and some of the others. It's, it's really, you know, it feels like I've sort of been like, groomed by some disgusting old man. Mm. You know, that's, I can't help but think, what I would think as a 19 year old and think he's so old, you know, that's gross. Yeah. What I would, I would think, but that's, you know, that's probably, that's what my advice would be is if it feels wrong, if you don't feel comfortable, if it feels wrong, it is wrong. You know, don't, don't worry about causing a scene. Just, you know, no's no. Mm. Yeah. And what would you hope to be the outcome of your campaigning work now? Um, I mean, there's two, there's two parts to the campaigning. So one is with um, police spies out of lives and, you know, that's to do with trying to get as much sort of disclosure from the inquiry and just trying to get some sort of meaningful um, results from it. So there's that sort of part, but there's also, um, because of his, um, like Andy, Andy Coles, as we now know he is, um, he's also a Tory councillor and, you know, so I'm part of another campaign is um, is to make him or to get him to step down from being in a position of power where I'm concerned that he will use that power to to do the same thing again. You know, I can't, it makes me uncomfortable to know that he has that power and that sort of position and anybody sort of younger or vulnerable you know, it's, it's, that's what keeps me awake at night. You know, he should step down. He should do the decent thing and step down. He was when, um, when this became public, he was the Deputy Police and Crime Commissioner um, for Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. And he stepped down like a couple of days later. Um, yeah. But he remains, he remains a councillor. Um, and I just, it's, it's not, it's, it's inappropriate. Yeah. I think it's, it's inappropriate. So I'm campaigning to, just to raise awareness. You know, that's as much as I can do because people, you know, there's an amazing amount of people that don't know about these um, stories. So it's just to, to raise awareness and to, to take him out of a position where he has a public, um, sort of public acceptance and, and power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is astonishing, really. I mean, it's kind of... You're right, I don't think a lot of people do know about this. Um, uh, yeah, and the, the, the profile of the, I mean, as you say, he's still, he, he's still in a very high position of power now. Um, do we, is there any idea of how many women were possibly affected by this? Uh, an estimate or a known number, or is that, yeah? Um, we know there's definitely over 30, and those are the ones that we, no, um, I think there were actually more that just had like the one night stands, um, but sort of, yeah, there's, there's over 30, but I think, you know, that doesn't even, that doesn't begin to cover um, the real amount because we don't, we know so little about what the actual officers, you know, even their cover names. If you don't give a cover name, 
people aren't going to say, oh, yes, I knew him. And people, you know, are not going to come forward and say, well, actually, yes, I had a relationship mm. with him. You know, it's been very few, some very few names and groups that have been spied on that have been named. You know, we just, it's, that's what's stopping people from, from finding out. You know, I'm fairly sure there's, there'd be more children born from these relationships. Um, but it's, you know, the, obviously the police are uh, fearful of having it come out, but to re just to release the cover names, you know, whether yeah. just we know would be one thing, but, you know, they're so fearful of, of, of that that they say, you know, they'll be tracked down and, you know, nothing's happened to any of them that have, you know, that we know who they are. It's just, you know, we just, we just need to know, you know, we just need the truth of who was in our lives and, and, you know, the, the results that have come from that yes as especially if if you have cases as you say where where children have been born i mean that must be such a such a trauma and and such a problem with finding your identity if if that has happened if if that is who your parents are um i was wondering what your view was i mean if you had you were so young but if, if you had a view of the police before it happened and how this happening has affected your perspective? Um, yes, I'm basically, I think any protester that has, has been at a protest where the police have been involved has a certain um, knowledge of, of how the police react to protesters. And I mean, Andy actually said, because he, um, we found out that he wrote the tradecraft manual for the SDS, which was one of the, um, was the group that the undercover officers were in. And he wrote the tradecraft manual. And he actually said that um, because he was, he was undercover as an animal rights activist, he said that he actually developed um, like a low opinion of uniformed officers that dealt with protesters and particularly ones that dealt with animal rights protesters. And they're sort of, you know, they're, they're violence towards them. So, it's, you know, it's recognised that, you know, so the police don't like protesters. And, you know, I, I had had sort of, you know, several examples of, of seeing, you know, terrible policing, you know, and violence from them. And, you know, so I didn't like the police. And there is no way, you know, I would have let the police, you know, into my house, let alone, you know, into my bed. You know, that's, that's just how it was. So, you know, it's not, it's not even that, you know, I it was you know i didn't have informed consent you know it was absolutely against my consent he knew what my feelings were towards the place you know mm. that would never in a million years have happened and that you know and there's part of me that thinks you know that's that was probably amusing to him you know to know that sort of the, you know with my views on the police that it was almost like he got one over on me because you know i had no idea and you know it's just you don't I don't know how deep this this goes but yeah I didn't like the place and um I mean I still still don't particularly like the police but I've never been I was never afraid of them before you know I do I have well yeah I suppose I'm afraid of them you know when I see the police car when I see the uniforms I just you know, it's, and in a way, it's, it feels slightly irrational because, I mean, I never saw him in, in uniform, but it's a uniform now. It just, you know, I just need to get, I have to get away. Um, mm. 
you know, I can't, it just, it makes my blood run cold, to be honest. So it's, yeah, it's still, it's still a problem that's, you know, that I'm not, I haven't quite got over yet. Yeah, I can imagine that's deeply triggering, really, because they are, you know, they're such a part of the fabric of our society. So you can't, you can't avoid it. Um, so yeah, no, I'm really sorry. Um, could maybe could you say a little bit more about um, about finding police out of lives and and what your journey together has been like? Um, yes, it was. I mean, basically, the it was. I think it was like it was eleven o'clock or something at night when I first found out about him, and so it was. I mean, I obviously had no not had no sleep that night, um, but then reading through everything and so I just I just spent the entire night reading all the women's stories and everything and I contacted uh, Harriet Wistrich um, the solicitor for the first eight women that sort of sued the police so I contacted her and then I spoke to um, undercover research group who just wanted sort of some more background about um, about Andy it was him that actually it was them that actually found him in the first place and then I was told that there's actually there's a support group because that's one of the the worst things I think is you know life prepares you for certain things you know sort of illness accidents disease death you know that's within the the scope of of anybody's life mm. but nothing really prepares you for for something like this it's so you know there's there was nowhere nowhere to go there was nobody to you know no one will have had a, a situation happen to them like this and so it's basically where do you go I mean even finding a counsellor it's what kind of counsellor do you need you know it's 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 such a, a a bizarre thing to have happened and so you know it's something that needed a support group and so I was put in touch with um I think it was Donna from um, Police Buys Out of Lives mm -hmm. and I phoned and spoke to her and literally I think she was a, she was just speaking at some conference at the time and I can remember thinking oh no I don't you know I don't hope they don't expect me to do that there's no there's no way to stand up and speak in front of people um, and then I sort of I went I went up to London and I met up with everybody and Sort of like Helen Steele and you know other other people that literally I'd just seen on on the internet um, and it sort of it suddenly it was like it was a group that you know we were in this group we didn't choose to be but we were in this group and there's a sort of a collective I suppose understanding of just of what's happened and you know so everyone I think has gone through the same emotions at certain points and it's you know and you, you don't have to explain yourself you know the sort of the paranoia and something is, is you know we've all been through it still going through it and it's just it's great to sort of you know in a way to know you're not going mad you know that this did actually happen and you know people just people to sort of to talk to and also you know campaign with it's and I, you know now i do stand up and speak in front of people um you know i never thought that i that i would at all and it wasn't it would never have been me before this happened it just wasn't anything that i would ever have done mm. um but 
you know, it's because we're, we're part of a group, you know, we are there and we do support each other. And that's, you know, I think that's the, the only good thing that's, um, that's come out of this um, mm. situation is, you know, is, is the people that I've met, you know, you've got to, and I'm not just the other women as well, but, you know, other campaigners and that it's just, you know, thank, thankfully we've got each other and, you know, we're, we're great support for each other. Yeah. That's great. And, and it's really amazing to hear you talk about it and, and so eloquent and well. Um, and it, it is such important work to tell those stories and to, to make people realize what it's like. Um, I was wondering, because of course, this is within the context of um, giving a more deeper understanding of Eve Lee's play, White Tuesday. Um, I was wondering if you have seen or heard any other fictional depictions of cases like this and what would be something you would tell a writer or director wanting to tell these stories? Um, I haven't actually because I deliberately stay away from watching these things because from what, from what I've heard people say about these, it's, it seems to be that it's from a perspective of the actual undercover officers themselves. That's a lot of it sort of seems, you know, where you're going to make someone like that, um, you know, a sympathetic character, it just, it, it makes me sick. You know, I can't, I can't think about it in that way. I don't, I don't watch things like that because it makes me so angry. You know, I think if you've got, you know, for instance, three male writers that, write this story and then it's like oh the poor undercover policeman you know it's mm. that's you fundamentally miss the entire point of it you know that I'm sorry but they're you know they're not victims you mm. know it's not it's not about them you know it's, it shows no understanding whatsoever of the absolute you know catastrophic impact that it has on you know on the women's lives Mm. And there's, you know, I mean, it's, it's destroyed, it's destroyed so much of, of my life, you know, it's, and this is, I'm what, four years, three years into this now, and it's, mm. you know, the ramifications have been huge, you know, there's, there's so much that still, you know, I'm working through, I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm on medication, I've had some mental health issues with it, you know, I'm still having counselling, I can't, there's, it's, it's just, it's traumatic, but the trauma doesn't stop, you know, it's the next thing then that comes out, so the next, the next revelation of the next officer that comes out, or the finding, you know, finding out, for instance, like that Andy wrote the Tradecraft Manual, mm. and it's, it's just, everything just exacerbates it, you know, and, and in the end, knowing that from the, from the policing inquiry, we're probably not going to get much information at all not much disclosure it's just you know when that comes I think everybody's bracing themselves but then how do we go on with you know the, the one thing that's supposed to give us some sort of you know resolution some kind of you know um, acceptance of what has, has happened and I just think it's going to be another blow and we're, we're not going to get that at all so it's it's you know it's not there's not the police officers I don't think they're suffering through it 
you know, it's, it's, it's us and it's the not knowing, you know, they were aware of what they were doing, you know, everything that they did, you know, they knew and they knew they would face no consequences that, you know, no one would know who they were. So it gave them, it just gave them carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And, you know, it's, it's all of us that are dealing with it. And I don't think, I've not heard of, sort of any, um, any like adaptation that's actually sort of covered it properly from from our point of view. So no, I can't. I'm still. It just makes I'm fuming watching things like that. I just stay away from. Yeah. yeah. Because it's just it's so. It just for me it just misses the entire point. Mm. Very disappointing. It yeah. should really be um, the case that anyone who was to write about it would have to consult you and, and talk about it from your point of view as well. I mean, I know that's not the case, but, but that would be something to, to hope for, to, to tell the story from, from the point of view of the women. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, we, we are, you know, we are accessible, you know, we do talk about it. And that's the thing is, you know, it's, there's, there's would be no point in us talking about it because, you know, people need to know, people need to be aware. So we, you know, we do engage, we do sort of do, you know, do media things and that we, we want people to, to know. And, you know, so we're, we're always available for, um, you know, for, for our input, but when people go off and, you know, make, make these things without even considering sort of the other side of it, you know, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, sort of a kick in the teeth. So, yeah. Yes. So to, to all our listeners out there, we know that a lot of you are writers. These women can be contacted. <laughs> We've got the website at the um, end of the interview. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Amazing. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering as well, um, Jess. Uh, you, you've talked a little bit about the the friendships that you've made as a result, and that being something of a, a, a small silver lining. Um, how has this experience impacted your activism in general? Um, I think it's it's probably done in a certain extent it's it's made me an activist again um i wasn't involved in things i hadn't been sort of for, for quite some time but now i've been drawn back into sort of activism um it's you know it's yeah so in in that way it's had the sort of the opposite effect i think of, of what they they wanted but with regards to like um sort of going out and demonstrating and you know sort of like a, hunt sabbing and, mm. and that I'm you know I I want to go but there is there's there's a fear there mm. you know, I, I think that's it's of I, yeah I just don't I don't trust the police I I don't and you know I I know I just don't want to be put in a situation where I am anywhere near them mm-hmm. so it's you know I can I just no I can't I can't do it it, it would be too too stressful so no I try and stay away from um from anything any other sort of demonstrations it's, diff- it's different when it's say like the um you know uh, our sort of peace all and and that and um at the yeah. court and stuff that's that's a different sort of thing although the police are there but it's also you know it's it seems to be um, especially when the like the TV cameras and that are around, it's it's a completely different um, different situation. So yeah, I I'm quite happy to sort of to, to do 
you know, activism around this this subject. Um, mm -hmm. But outside of that, I wouldn't. I feel I'd be putting myself at risk. So no, yeah. I, I can't. I can't do that. Not not yet. Yeah. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, it's been so amazing talking to you and really, really interesting and eye-opening. Um, unfortunately, we already have to draw to a close, but we have a final question for you. Um, are there any women that have inspired you in the past or are a source of inspiration to you now? Uh, I think I would have to say the the women from Peaceall, you know, particularly like the, the original eight women, because they were the ones that they had, you know, they had nothing when they sort of started out. And it's, you know, it's because of them that we, it's so much easier for, for other people to, to come out now. It's, um, you know, because of the work they put in and, you know, the years that they've put in and it's, you know they're just they're amazing you know the energy and the staying power and that that they that they have you know to still be fighting and you know i just yeah i've sort of aspired just to be a bit like them you know i i need to sort of to follow in their in their shoes really and you know and all the, the new women that are coming forward and that it's you know i see i see women now that are in the situation i was in three years ago and it's you know they're, they're out there and they're speaking about things and it's you know it's inspiring to see and you know so yeah i would have to say it's the it's the other women you know they've given me the the, the strength to to actually sort of come forward and, and speak about this so yeah i have to say it's all of it's all of our our group it sounds like you're doing, you know, incredibly, Jess, and thank you so, so much for chatting to us. Um, so, yeah, just for all the listeners, um, if anyone would like to find out more about the organisation Police Spies Out of Lives and uh, to find out how you can support them or talk to them, um, you can visit policespiesoutoflives.org.uk. Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Lily McLeish, with intro music by Jane Dixon. Next week, we'll be listening to the play Hornet by our very own Josephine Start and talking to Josephine and her special guest, Kate Mills. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and on how to contribute your own play to our podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.